We continue looking in Genesis today at the call of faith that's exemplified in the story of Abraham. God had promised Abraham two basic things, if you remember. The first was land, and the second was descendants, right? By land, I mean around 300 square miles of the Fertile Crescent, uh, a place of extreme abundance, a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, and a, a large area that Israel, that the Jews all throughout history have never fully occupied. Even at their peak, they, uh, they had about 10% of what God had promised Abraham. And so that promise has yet to be fulfilled, but it is something that God has promised, and it will be fulfilled in the end times. He also promised descendants, as I said, and by descendants, we mean countless offspring, right? Uh, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, etc. And they become so numerous that nations would come from them. And that is precisely what we'll see unfolding throughout the, the story of Scripture. Now, technically, God had promised more than that. He promised Abraham uh, land and descendants, but he also said, he also promised that you will be a blessing to the whole world. You'll be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Uh, he also said, I'll bless anyone who's good to you, and I will curse anyone who's bad to you. So he had some additional stipulations on there. So when I say land and descendants, those are the two basic things that we pay attention to. But there were some other uh, terms that God had put out. Now, God is good on his word. That which he promised, he does perform. He will fulfill it by his sovereign power. And uh, that doesn't mean it's easy for Abraham. See, God promised Abraham incredible things. And Abraham didn't just sit and wait and receive. It wasn't really just that. He went through this whole journey of wondering, is it really going to happen? Is, is, is God actually going to keep his word? This happened throughout his life. He is constantly wondering if God is really going to take care of him, if really, if really God is going to pull through. Uh, he knows enough about God to feel like he shouldn't doubt, but it's not that easy when life hits you hard. And hopefully you can relate to that. We all know enough about God that we should not doubt and we should not fear. And yet it's not that easy when life hits you hard. For Abraham to be promised descendants and land and the eternal inheritance and a legacy, uh, that is the, the greatest thing you could wish for in this life, especially in that, in that time, in that, uh, in that culture. And so, of course, Abraham wants it. And yet, as his story unfolds, events transpire that seem to threaten that outcome. Events take place where he goes, I don't know if God's going to actually do what he said he'd do. Did I misunderstand God? Did God forget? Like, how is God even going to do this? While the story of Abraham is eventually one of outstanding faith, it does take testing. And he frequently faces fear and doubt. It is not easy. It's not painless. It's not convenient. It was always a testing. Well, today we're going to see that this is still an ongoing pattern. Following God is never easy or painless or convenient. It's not peaceful. It's not simple. It is fraught with difficulty and trouble. It is trials of various kinds. And so there are always obstacles in the way that seem to threaten to reduce or remove the things that God promised. Abraham knows everything that God promised him, but the things that take place in his life, he becomes fearful of because they seem to reduce or remove 
what God had promised. So for Abraham, here in uh, Genesis 20 and 21, we're going to see four such obstacles, and they're going to be familiar. There's going to be a lot of repetition from the chapters we've already seen. If you're taking notes here, the four movements. The first one is the fatherhood obstacle, which will be all 18 verses of chapter 20. The fatherhood obstacle. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. The second will be the fertility obstacle, which is chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. The third will be the lineage obstacle, and that's chapter 21, verses 8 to 21. And then the, the last will be the land obstacle, which is chapter 21, verses 22 to 34. Let's start with the fatherhood obstacle in chapter 20. Abraham is going to leave the area that he, he's been staying at, the oaks near Mamre at Hebron. Uh, he's going to stay there. He's going to go south into Philistine territory, uh, which is still in the, within the area that God promised him. It's still in the land that God promised him. God said, as you wander around, uh, around in this land, I will be with you. Right? And so he's still going to be within his, within his land, the, the land that will eventually belong to his descendants. Uh, and he's going to end up meeting a, a Philistine ruler named Abimelech, uh, which means my father is king. And so he's a, a ruler of some sort. Uh, and uh, when he meets Abimelech, he's also going to, uh, you're, you'll see, he'll revert back to that whole fear and doubt mode that we've seen him do every now and then. Uh, Abimelech is a Philistine ruler. And Philistine, by the way, just means sea people or coastal people. It doesn't necessarily designate a specific nation, although later on it, it will. But uh, the, the term itself just means coastal people. All right, let's start with chapter 20, verse 1. It says, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived near Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. So all of this is to say he went south into Philistine territory. Okay, verse two. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. All right, now stop there for a second. Okay, this, this feels very familiar, right? Abraham, having left his place of worship, is now repeating the same mistakes that he made in, back in chapter 12 when we first met him. He tells Abimelech, much like he did Pharaoh back in chapter 12, that Sarah is my sister instead of Sarah is my wife, right? And, he, and he, he does this because he knows that Sarah is attractive. Even though right now Sarah is 90 years old, she is attractive enough that Pharaoh takes her as, as a wife for himself in his harem, and so Abraham knows that this is going to happen. He anticipates it, and he thinks, well, if I'm her husband, he's going to kill me to get me out of the way. But if I'm her brother, then he'll negotiate with me, and he'll pay a bride price, and then, you know, I live and profit, and then I guess Sarah becomes his wife, and that's a small little hiccup in the story, but that's kind of what he reasons is, like, that's what I'll do. It's what he does to buy himself some time, it seems, because uh, time is running out. They've got this little issue here. 
Sarah is pregnant, but not visibly so. You can't see her pregnancy yet. So she's, I guess we would then place it somewhere in the first trimester of her pregnancy. Uh, and what's going to happen then is if, if Sarah goes to be with Abimelech, and if they, if they spend one night together and she's in Abimelech's embrace, then at that point, when she has a child, it becomes a question of who's the father. Is it Abraham or is it Abimelech? It becomes a fatherhood obstacle. How do you know God kept his promise? How do you know that's even Abraham's son? How do you know that's not Abimelech's son? So uh, what happens is God seems to intervene in some way. And, and the story is very stunted. It's very staccato. And it, uh, it just moves from detail to detail without a whole lot of smooth transition. Because the author's not really interested in giving you, the, you know, all the, the, the workings out. What he just tells you is uh, God walked up to Abimelech and said, hey, you're, you're as good as dead. He doesn't say you will be dead. He says... You're doomed. You are. Like something is going on right now, and, it's, and it's, it's ongoing. And even Abimelech, he doesn't seem to go like, why? What's going to happen? He already acknowledges that something has happened. Something has been happening. This isn't a prediction of the future. This is a confirmation of something that is going on in the present. He's like, wait, wait, wait. Are you going to kill an innocent people? And notice he doesn't say, are you going to kill me? He says, you're going to wipe out all my people? Because he knows something's been going on in among his people that God is now confirming to him, you're, you are dead. You're, you're, you're a goner. So something's been happening to Abimelech and his people that Abimelech seems to have noticed, which is why he asks, will you kill an innocent people? Uh, it was a threat not just against himself, but against his whole household. Uh, if, if you skip to verse 18, I'll just show it to you. Verse 18 you'll kind of get what's going on. It says, for the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, for Yahweh had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Right? That's, that's what's going on. Abimelech and all the women in his household, his wives, his concubines, his whole harem, is for some reason unable to have children. Now, that would take months to notice, wouldn't it? Right? If, if he were just spending time with all of his wives, spending nights with all of them, it would take months to notice that no one's getting pregnant. But that's not really the case because this whole story takes place while Sarah is still not visibly pregnant, right? So he notices very quickly. So it seems to be that there might be some kind of maybe a discharge that the women and Abimelech might be uh, experiencing. Maybe not Abimelech. We don't know. But there would be something visible that says that they are no, not at the moment available for intimate contact. And so Abimelech is, uh, is noticing this, and he, he sees that it affects his entire household. And so when God says, you're a dead man, he's like, wait, you're going to kill all of us? Because he knows it's affecting everyone. He cannot have children with any of these wives. So uh, this infertility plague of some sort uh, seems to... Uh, seems to be affecting all of the women of the house and maybe Abimelech. And so he's afraid. He believes his people are going to die out. And so when God says, you are a dead man, he's not saying you're going to die right now physically. He's saying you're going to go extinct. Like you, your name, your whole household, that's the kind of dead he's talking about. Like you'll live your life and then die of old age maybe, but then you'll be gone and forgotten. He already knows it's happening right now. So when God speaks to him, Abimelech, 
finds out why it's happening, right? He insists on the, his innocence in the matter. He's like, what? what are you talking about? I was lied to. What do you mean Sarah is someone else's wife? I didn't know Sarah was Abraham's wife. Why would you kill all my people? Is that what you're going to do? Will you kill a people for a crime I didn't commit? I'm speaking from the innocence of my heart. And the author stresses Abimelech's actual innocence. If you notice the way it's written, it really stresses his innocence. He never went even, he never even went near Sarah. He didn't touch her. He didn't approach her, right? So he never even went near Sarah. We have to agree he didn't do anything wrong, intentionally anyway, right? He did not act with malicious instincts. If you recall with Sodom and Gomorrah, God has been asked before by Abraham, he was basically asked the question, are you going to treat the righteous equally as the wicked? Are you going to treat righteous people as if they're wicked? And God says, no, of course I wouldn't do that. Why would I treat someone who's not guilty as if he's guilty? That's the whole issue. And so that's what Abimelech is asking. Am, are you going to treat me and my people when we've done nothing wrong, are you going to treat us as if we're wrongdoers? So here we are reading this, and you know, we say, yeah, Abraham lied to him. Abimelech didn't do anything wrong. What's God going to do? Because God has clearly enacted some kind of a, a, a plague of some sort. Verse 6, then God said to Abimelech in the dream, he said, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God gives Abimelech a decision to make. He's like, you can stay your course or you can change your course. If you keep Sarah, you will never have children. If you return Sarah then Abraham will pray for you and the curse will be lifted. And God says, I cursed you like this so that it would prevent you from doing something really bad. I stopped you. I prevented you. You thought it was a curse, but this is actually something of a blessing because I prevented you from really messing things up. So Abraham is a, a, called a prophet here. God says, that's my representative. That's my mouthpiece on the earth. He is my prophet and, uh, and he says, so you got you to gotta make sure you do not play around with my anointed ones. And so he says, give the wife back, let him pray for you, everything will be fine. Now, it's strange that Abimelech would be threatened at all, given his innocence, but God has a promise to keep, remember? God promised Abraham land and descendants, but he also said, I'm going to bless anyone who blesses you who's good to you, and I'm going to curse anyone who dishonors you, anyone who's bad to you. That's in chapter 12, verse 3. And God wasn't kidding. God threatened Abimelech with danger because Abimelech was very close to violating Abraham's family, whether he knew it or not. And because he didn't know it, God gave him warning. God sent in a preventative problem, and then God came up to him in a dream and clarified what was going on. So at no point was Abimelech really held accountable for any crime he didn't commit. God gave every measure to make sure the crime was not committed. All right, verse uh, eight. 
So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Which is true. Verse 10, And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Like, what were you thinking? That's the question he's asking. Why why would you do that? Why would you walk up to me, lie to me like that, and then get me in trouble by God? Now, um, the innocence of Abimelech is further emphasized, not only in his words and stuff, but look how he immediately wakes up the next morning. He responds. He calls all his guys together. He warns them. They're all afraid. So he's not like, hey, so like I got a, had a dream and I don't know, some God talked to me. He instilled the fear of God in them. They were all afraid, right? So if I can phrase it a certain way, would you agree that Abimelech and his household is exhibiting the fear of God? Yes. Okay. Uh, Notice how Abimelech says it's Abraham's fault, because it is. This isn't Abimelech's doing, it's Abraham's doing, because it is. Abimelech is not the villain here. We, we, the reader, uh, we are recruited by the author to understand that. Watch Abraham's explanation, verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Okay, so uh, we got to deal with a couple of uh, these things here. Um, Abraham gives two reasons. First, he says, oh, I did this. I lied about her because you, the Philistine people, you don't fear Yahweh God, the fear of God is not in this place. And so he was like, that's what Abraham was freaked out about. That's what made him panic. And yet if God wants to instill the fear of God in people, he will. And he did. They previously did not fear Yahweh God. And now they do. Not because of Abraham, but because of God. The second thing he says is, uh, is look, I, I did lie to you, but it's not really a lie because Sarah is my half-sister. We have the same dad. We have a different mom. And if you're wondering about the, the okayness of that, uh, you can kind of go back in our Genesis uh, sermons you know, from chapter 1 through basically 10. That's like everything. But you can listen to all the previous stuff. We, we've gone into that whole issue, okay, on, on uh, multiplying, filling the earth and Uh, And then, like, relationships with siblings. Okay. Uh, So here's this thing where he goes, but Sarah actually is my half-sister. So when I say she's my sister, it's not really a lie. It's a technicality. Right? And so he's using truth to deceive. Truth to mislead. And there's another character that did that in the Bible previously. His name is Satan. Or at least he's called the serpent in the book of Genesis. Apparently, this was always Abraham's plan, right? He's always been do- doing this. He's like, hey, I've always told Sarah, do this kindness for me, right? Every, t- every time we go around and stuff, we're wandering from place to place in foreign lands. Always just say you're my sister. So this isn't the second time he's done it. This is the nth time he's done it. He's done it all the time. So we don't go, oh, man, he did it twice and he failed twice. Why didn't he learn? Because that's kind of our instinct, isn't it? To read this and go, the second time he's doing it, he failed the second time. 
dum-dum, right? But no, how many times has he succeeded with this strategy? We don't know. I mean, this is what they do. They go around, hey, who's this? It's my sister. Okay. So he's done it many, many times. This is the way he's just been doing it. It's always been his plan ever since he started journeying with God to, to have Sarah say that she's his sister. He was always afraid of being killed in his travels, so he'd basically activate that plan whenever they entered a, a foreign area. So instead of wondering why he does this a second time, realize he does it all the time. Yeah, he failed twice. We don't know how many times he succeeded. That's fine. In any case, hiding the fact that Sarah is Abraham's wife is a distinct lack of trust in God. In God as his shield and his very great reward. In God as protector. In God as his defender. He doubted that God would be his shield. He doubted that God would protect him and that God would bless his friends and curse his enemies. He felt like his best defense would be to lie, to compromise, to do what he knew was wrong, but it's not that wrong. It's just a technicality. Rather than to proclaim God's name and let the enemy tremble. Verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. That's a bride price, by the way. A thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. So he's like, I'm giving you back and I'm saying nothing happened and I'm, I'm putting this much money into it to let everyone know how important that is for me to make that clear. Verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. So that's why I say it might have affected Abimelech as well and his whole uh, household. Verse 18, for Yahweh had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, clearly, Abimelech has repented and believed that the God of Abraham is true and matchless. He did not try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with El Shaddai, with, with God Almighty. He doesn't necessarily change religions. It doesn't mean that he becomes a Christian or a Jew or whatever you want to call it at this moment because neither of those terms exist yet. He doesn't necessarily change religions and, be, and become a believer in Yahweh God where he worships you know, with, with his life. It, but he does respond in this moment humbly, sincerely, and generously, probably to appease God. The fear of God is very evident in him. He gives a bunch of animals and servants and money and freedom for Abraham to roam around throughout his land. He's like, you can do whatever you want in my land. I am not messing with you. I will not give you trouble. Go wherever you want in my land, set up camp, do your thing. I'm not gonna get mad. And the irony is uh, Abraham is the one who is full of fear and doubt when he should have been the one that was fearless. Right? He should have. And yet here's Abimelech, and he's the one that's, that's uh, exhibiting the worshipful attitude. And yet God hasn't changed. Abraham flip-flops back and forth all the time, you know, faithful and then fearful, devoted and then doubting. 
He does that a lot, but God hasn't changed. God has called Abraham to faith, and he's proven multiple times that he will protect him and bless him. God has defeated Abraham's enemies. God has increased Abraham's wealth. God has protected Abraham's friends and family. God has proven himself to be almighty God, all-powerful God. God has shown his wrath against sin and grace to those who believe and protection of the innocent. When God's promise is threatened by a fatherhood obstacle, God can prevent everyone's fatherhood if he wants to, which he did in order to protect Abraham's. Look at the fertility obstacle then. Chapter 21, verse 1. Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And that's because the word Isaac, the name Isaac means laughter. He laughs, right? Verse seven. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, who would have, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, this, this chapter here, the, the first verse really picks up from things that were mentioned in chapter 17, verse 21. Let's get that up there. Uh, where God says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Right? God said, you're going to have a son with your wife, Sarah, not with anyone else. And that son will be Isaac. And my, my promises will go through Isaac. And then in, in Genesis 18, verse 10, Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. So God gives specific timing. He's like, you're going to get pregnant very soon. And then I'll return to you. So everything in between chapter 18 and, and now took place within that, that year. Uh, the child then eventually is born and circumcised and named Isaac. Everything seems to carry on exactly as, uh, as was predicted. Isaac is the son who will carry all the promises of God, meaning land, descendants, being a blessing to the nations, all that stuff, right? Now, I don't know if you can tell, but the birth of Isaac, the way that it's told here, it's so fast. Look how much time was spent arguing with Abimelech. And then look how much attention is given to the birth of Isaac. It's, it's so anticlimactic because it's not supposed to have tension, right? We're not supposed to be like, is it going to happen or not? We're not. The, the, the emphasis on God's sovereignty is so overt that the author's like, well, of course it happened. It happened exactly the way that it was supposed to. Verse 1 says, Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did to Sarah as he had promised. Verse 2 says, Sarah bore a son at the time of which God had spoken. Verse 3 says, Abraham named his son Isaac, he laughs, which is Abraham obeying God and naming his son from chapter 17, verse 19. Verse 4 says, Abraham circumcised Isaac as God had commanded him. Verse 5 says, Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah was 
was 90 then, uh, when Isaac was born. So it's clear that this is a miraculous event, not a natural one. Clearly God had intervened on this as God said he would. Verse six says, God has made laughter for me because God was in control of this whole situation. God made it all happen. Verse seven reemphasizes the impossibility of having children at this age. Even Abraham and Sarah, who are believers in Yahweh God, couldn't believe it happened and were jaw-dropping shocked and surprised and shaken at the reality of the power of God. It's interesting to me that Isaac is born in Philistine territory, by the way. They're still there, you know, in Philistine territory since chapter 20. They're still there, and you'll see at the end of this chapter, they're still there. Abraham didn't spend all his life in, in, in his own little, like, ter- in his own land. He, he was always a foreigner. He was always wandering around. He spent pretty much all of his life of faith wandering, and so did Isaac. So while the promise of Isaac's birth is fulfilled with the first descendant, still so much is left to be fulfilled pertaining to the land. Even the Jews to this day wait for the land. But this is the end of a long-awaited part of the promise, the promise of a son between Abraham and Sarah, the first descendant. It should never have happened. Sarah was barren, so it's impossible for her to have kids. And then she got old and passed the, the biological time of having children. She, she completed menopause. She's passed it. So now it's twice as impossible for her to have children. What's impossible times two? It's very impossible, impossible-list, whatever you want to call it, but it's, it's more than impossible. And yet God, having proven his power over fertility and infertility with the whole Abimelech situation, has no problem surmounting the fertility obstacle in Sarah. The fatherhood obstacle, the fertility obstacle. Now look at the lineage obstacle. Verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. That's Isaac. He grew and he was weaned. And, uh, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So if you get what's going on here, Sarah saw Ishmael. Remember how a while ago she's like, hey, I can't have kids, so you should have a kid with the maid, with Hagar. And then when she has a son, we'll raise it as ours. It'll be our son. And that's, that, that was her plan, and they did that, and it, it was a, a fiasco. It was a debacle. Well, they raised Ishmael into his teen years, and then God comes in and he's like, no, 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 no. You're going to have a son with Sarah. That's going to be your son that I was talking about. So all, these, all this time, even saying, Ishmael, you're the son of promise. No, he's not. You're going to have a son with your wife, Sarah. Isaac, that's the one I established my covenant with. He's the son of promise. So now it's all weird. And, uh, and it's been some time now where Isaac has been born and Isaac is weaned. So he's like three to five years of age in this time. Okay, he's about three to five years old when he's weaned. It, so uh, that, that kind of gives you a chronology for Ishmael. Ishmael at this time is 17 to 19 years old. 
Okay, 17 to 19 years old. He might be entering college age. That means that he has like enough of a thinking mind to not just be talking stupid all the time, like he's like a, you know, like just learning words and doesn't know what he's saying or anything like that. It's not that. He is fully in control of his thoughts and responsible for his words. And he sees Isaac on this festival day where he's weaned and everyone's celebrating, you know, the, the, the weaning. I don't know what they call it, but, uh, and then he's laughing. And the word laughing carries the, the connotation of mocking, right? It's, it's, it's that laughing word. He's, he's laughing in ridicule uh, for something. The problem is more legitimate than just him laughing at Isaac. He wasn't just teasing him, okay? The, the issue is that, um, well, look at chapter 16, verse 2. It, uh, Sarah said to Abram, behold, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. Uh, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, right? Sarah, his wife. Now, what that is, is she said, It'll be my child if, if you go and have a son with the maid, right? And so now they thought Ishmael was their child, Abraham and Sarah's child. Even though Hagar was the biological mother, like all the rights and all the identity went to Ishmael as a son of Abraham and Sarah adoptively, which means he's the first son of the household. And now Isaac's born. So here's Ishmael laughing at Isaac, and it seems to imply that he's laughing at him as if Isaac is lesser than him. The, the, the eldest son always carried more authority and significance. And Sarah is not going to have it. Even though Sarah, it was Sarah's uh, whole thing, she wanted to raise Ishmael as her own son, but now that she has her own, she's like, wait, th there's, there's a problem here. Ishmael thinks that he is the eldest son of this family. And I will not have the, the inheritance. I will, I will not share the inheritance between Ishmael and Isaac. He will not be an heir with my son Isaac. So that's the problem, right? And what's going to happen now? Because Ishmael has been raised so far as Abraham's legitimate biological son originally intended to be the heir. It's an issue of inheritance. It's an issue of lineage, right? Both Ishmael and Isaac are sons of Abraham, but only one of them is the son of the promise, has the lineage of, of Abraham and Sarah. The other one is Abraham and Hagar. So which line will God choose to bless? Because one is legitimately the elder son, and the other is the prophesied son. Which do you choose? It's a lineage obstacle. Verse 12. But God said to Abraham, he said, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. See, God, uh, uh, God told Abraham to go ahead and, and send her off. And it's an interesting thing that he says, uh, don't be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. He doesn't say, don't be displeased because of your son and your wife. Because Hagar was the maid, she was a slave woman, but Abraham married her. 
and then had Ishmael with her. So he, she was a second wife, but then God does not recognize the polygamy. He says, don't be, don't be sad because of your son or because of the boy and your slave woman. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't refer to that as a marriage. I guess we shouldn't read too far into that, but at least the emphasis on the fact that this is not the, the union that I was blessing. That's, that's brought out here. And he says, like, I, I know you care about your biological son, Ishmael. I know. But don't be worried. I will take care of him. And he does say that. He's like, he is your offspring. I absolutely acknowledge he is your offspring. I am not disregarding that. I will take care of him. I release you from your obligation to do that. And so God says, send him away. I'll do my thing. Now you got to trust me with him. Right? So Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. Hagar, by the way, becomes the first instance of a single mother raising her child in the Bible. Verse 15. When the water in the water skin was gone, Hagar put the child, Ishmael, under one of the bushes, and then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about a distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Now, I got to remind you at this point that Ishmael is not a baby in a crib or a carriage or a, a, a basket. He's 17 to 19 years old. So when she like puts him under a bush, she's not like, you know, she's not like carrying him like a baby. Uh, it means that they've been traveling in the desert with one water skin. Who knows how long that lasts? And we don't know how long they've been traveling, but they're far enough away that they can't go back and ask for more water. And they are dying. And she doesn't want to watch her son die. So he seems uh, delirious or, or so dehydrated that he's weak. And so she places him under a bush for some, some amount of shade. And then she goes away to just grieve and mourn that her son is going to die and that she's going to die. Hagar believes that she failed her son. Hagar must feel abandoned, alone. Everything that could feel awful must be rolling around inside her heart. Verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. And he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. So you get this kind of time-traveling future sum-up of everything that's going to come about with, with this kid, Ishmael. Now, she's weeping, right? And uh, verse 17, well, verse 16 says that Hagar's weeping, but verse 17 says, God heard the voice of the boy. So maybe the boy is weeping too? Maybe? It could be. But I wonder if you're raised in a house where someone's saying, Yahweh God is going to bless you. You are the son of promise. You are the, the future of this family. You are the blessed destiny of the people of Abraham and Yahweh God is our shield and our very great reward and our protector, our defender. If that's what you're hearing for 17 years of your life, 
then maybe on the brink of death, you're saying, God, where are you? Are you there? Do you hear us? We're dying. It is significant that Hagar weeps, but God hears the boy because the boy maybe was crying out to God. Just to highlight a a recurring idea here, Abraham's family constantly spends most of its chapters on the brink of extinction. Abraham and Sarah were going to have their lineage die out because Sarah was barren for so long. So they were on the brink of extinction. Abraham's nephew, Lot, was living out in Sodom, and that place was going to get bombed. And then they escaped, and it's just him and his, his daughters that survived. And they're on the brink of extinction, but then his daughters take matters into their own hands, and they get their father drunk and have children with him because their family was on the brink of extinction. Here, Ishmael and Hagar, which is Abraham's son and Abraham's second wife, Ishmael and Hagar are near death from dehydration and exposure to the elements. Abraham's lineage with Hagar is threatened with extinction until God saves. And even in the next chapter, spoiler alert, we'll see that Isaac is at the threshold of death too, which means the covenant family, the covenant line is also at the brink of extinction. Following God does not make life easy or painless, or convenient, or peaceful, or simple. A life of faith is constantly tested and filled with cries to heaven. So God provides a well of water right next to where, the, uh, the, where Hagar and, and Ishmael are dying of thirst. And then God stayed with the boy and blessed him, increased him. Our attention is again brought to God's sovereignty as Ishmael grows up in the wilderness and becomes everything that God said he would become in the previous chapters. Ishmael is blessed by God. He's not hated or mistreated for being from a different mom. God sticks with him and stays close to him because he is Abraham's son and that's what God said he'd do. God solves the lineage problem. He he preserves the covenant line and he still protects the son outside of the covenant. Final one is the land obstacle. We're about to see a conversation here with, uh, with Abimelech again. Abraham's gonna go and talk with Abimelech again, and Abimelech's gonna bring a commander of the army. His name is P-H-I-C-O-L. Uh, it's, I mean, you look at that, how do you pronounce that? He's a commander of an army. If you pronounce it fickle, that doesn't sound like a good name for a commander of an army, you're fickle. Uh, If you call him fecal, that's even worse. Uh, In the Hebrew, it's pronounced pihol, but that sounds like pihol. And so I'm going to Americanize that on purpose and just go with the hard velar stop. I'm going to go with pihol. That is a mispronunciation on purpose. Pihol. Okay. Verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and pihol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, 
But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will. Now, (laughs) I I like how the first thing Abimelech says to greet Abraham is, swear that you're not going to lie to me. That's what he just said here, right? He's like, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, right? Like, I know you're God. I know him. Swear to him that uh, you're not going to lie to me. That's what he says. He's a... He's making sure the approach is, is all good here, right? No more of this Sarah is my sister nonsense. Uh, they talk. Abraham lets Abimelech know that, uh, that some event seems to have transpired. Apparently, Abimelech's roaming around in Philistine territory, and he dug a well. And then Abimelech's men came and seized the well. They're like, this is Abimelech's land. You can't dig a well. Look at verse 25. It says, when Abraham reproved Abimelech, about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. That's the second time he's like, hey, I didn't know about this, right? Why why are you mad at me? Stop getting mad at me. I didn't know about this. That's the second time he did that. All right, verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant, or the two men cut a covenant, if you remember the use of the verb. Verse 28. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and uh, Abimelech said to Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And Abraham said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. That's Almost exactly the same as, remember Abimelech gave Abraham a bunch of stuff and then a thousand, shekel, a thousand pieces of silver and goes, this is so everyone knows what's going on here that your wife has been returned safe and sound, I, nothing happened, right? Here's, Abimelech go, uh, here's Abraham going, here's a bunch of animals and property and stuff and then I'm giving you seven ewe lambs so that everyone knows that I dug this well and I have the right to it. Okay, verse uh, 31. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Picol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Now, a well is a big deal in an agricultural society that's dependent on rainfall. Right? That is water. And you can see how important water is to, for instance, Hagar and Ishmael. Right? Water is a big deal if you're living in a desert. And so Abraham, he's been allowed to roam freely through Philistine territory as Abimelech granted him in chapter 20. So he dug a well in that land, which means he's kind of settling down. When you dig a well, that means you plan to stay for a while. That's, that's property. If you, if you dig a well, you have rights to the water. That's normal in that day. That is a legal, regular thing. But Abimelech's men seized it. So here's the question. If If this is part of the land that God promised to Abraham, if it's part of that 300,000 square miles of the Fertile Crescent, if that's part of the area that God said, I promised this to you, you will get this. If this is part of that land and Abraham's wandering around in it and God said, wherever you go, I'm with you, then he should be able to hold on to a well, at least a well. I mean, he's living in a tent. He doesn't even have a house. At least give him a drinking fountain. And so... This is a, an issue here. If every time he digs a well, do, do the owners of the land in the area, do, they could just take it away? How, if, that's, if that's how easy it is to rob Abraham of his stuff, how does he even know he's going to get the land as a whole and everything in it? He can't even keep a hole in the ground with some water in it. So it's a land obstacle. 
Now, God doesn't have to act to resolve this one. And God doesn't even do anything here because he already did. The whole curse on Abimelech with, you know, with the whole, like, your, your household is going to die out. You can't have kids and stuff. He was going to do all that, right? That already happened. So if you watch how Abimelech greets Abraham, he walks up. He's like, God is with you in all that you do. Like, I know you're God. He blesses you. I get it. You, you got friends in high places. Let's, let's, not, uh, let, let's not be enemies. Let me deal kindly with you. Swear that you'll deal kindly with me. So he approaches with extremely careful language, despite the fact that he is the ruler of that land. He approaches again with the fear of God. He's not going to mess around. He, he doesn't want to fight. He wants to negotiate. He comes in humility. So instead of Abimelech, uh, you know, giving all this stuff to Abraham, now it kind of it switches around. Abraham gives all this stuff to them. They cut a covenant, right? They make peace, promising honest dealings with each other, about, uh, especially about this issue of the well. And so they call that place Beersheba, which means the well of seven or the well of the oath. It's kind of a word play there. It means the well of seven or the well of the oath because... You know, it's about a well, and Abraham gave seven new lambs. You get it, right? And that's resolved. Abimelech says, yes, that's your well. We've cut a covenant. We have peace. And you have, uh, you have in a sense, purchased that area. By the, the seven new lambs show that this is yours. And that's Beersheba, that's yours, right? And so Beersheba becomes a place where Abraham settles down with his well, and that becomes kind of his main base of operations for the rest of his story, and also the main base of operations for Isaac, his son. Whenever we see God protect or bless Abraham, we typically see Abraham respond in worship as kind of the author's wrap-up to the story, and so that's exactly what we get here. Verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and called there on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. The scene ends with Abraham planting a tree as a marker and worshiping God there, calling on his name. And just like digging a well means you're sticking around for some time, planting a tree means the same thing. You're sticking around, you're planting roots, quite literally and figuratively. Beersheba will become his, his base of operations. And Abraham calls on the name of Yahweh, and he says, Yahweh, God everlasting. Yahweh, El Olam. El Olam. God everlasting. Everlasting is one of the, the words that we could use for Olam. We can also translate it eternal always, enduring, timeless, unchanging. It's all wrapped up in there, El Olam, the God who is not under the power of time. He is God everlasting, God eternal, God always, God enduring, God unchanging. This is the first and only time in the Bible that El Olam is used of God's name. Why does he call him that here? Why does Abraham call upon God's name in that way? Because he knows God as El Shaddai, God Almighty. 
But why then does he call upon him as El Olam? Well, it's because Abraham and Sarah, they still seem kind of like the same people. They flip-flop back and forth all the time, and they still seem like they're like that. Abraham still lies, just like before. Sarah still expels Hagar and Ishmael, just like she did before. Right? They seem like they haven't really gone through a whole lot of character development here. Their arc is rather flat. They haven't changed much, and that's bad. Because the way that they started out is not great, and still, they're not great. And yet, here's God, who also is unchanging. He's God everlasting, God eternal, God enduring. And yet, because God hasn't changed, that's good. Because for all the dumb mistakes and bad decisions that Abraham and Sarah make, for all the amount of them freaking out and doing dumb stuff, God stays faithful and keeps his promises. God protects Abraham and Sarah like he promised. God curses and blesses other peoples through them like he promised. God gives them Isaac, their son, their only son, like he promised. God protects and blesses Ishmael like he promised. God preserves the inheritance. God preserves the land. God preserves the covenant. God preserves the plan because God didn't change. God is everlasting. God is unchanging. But you and I, if you haven't noticed, we are not Abraham and we're not even biological descendants of Abraham. I, I'm thinking everyone here is a Gentile. So what in the world does this have to do with us? You read all this stuff about this promise to Abraham and everything, and you can read it and you go, well, that's great to know. I'll just file that away in my history files, but that's not helpful. Why is this written? Why would the author point this out? It's to tell you that God doesn't change. It's not to tell you that Abraham, man, he's got it good. He's, he's in to hit the jackpot. It's not that. It's to tell you that God isn't changing. Everyone else is failing him. How many people here, for all these obstacles, were actually acting to solve the problems? No one. What did Abraham do? He got himself into these situations. What did Sarah do? She got herself into these situations. What did God do? He stayed faithful. Because when God makes promises, he keeps them. And what that has to do with you and me is that God has made you promises. And what you learn here is that God will keep them. What has God promised you? What has God promised us? Even though we're not biological descendants of Abraham. What has he promised Christians? John 3.16 says he promised you salvation. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise. If you trust in Jesus, you are saved. He promises you provision. That doesn't mean riches, but provision. Matthew 6, 31 says, don't be anxious saying, what will I eat, what will I drink, what will I wear? Gentiles and, and non-believers, unbelievers in the, the use of the word Gentiles there, the Gentiles seek after all these things that your heavenly father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Right? Don't worry if you're going to have enough. Take care of your walk with God. Take care of your relationship with God and he promises you you'll have enough. 
God promises you peace no matter what you're scared of. Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. Because life is filled with anxiety. It's filled with fear. And God says, call it out to me. I promise you peace. You won't even understand why you feel peace, but it'll be there. God promises you wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You want wisdom? Ask God. He'll give it to you. You gotta take hold of it. And if you, if you read the whole chapter there, he's saying it'll come through trials of various kinds because it's a reminder that the life of faith is not easy, painless, convenient, peaceful, or simple. And it certainly is not instant. It is still a life filled with crying out to heaven. And yet God will deliver on his promises. Final promise he gives you is that he will protect you against sin. He will grow you out of your sin. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. God will deliver you from the evil one. All these promises God will keep. Every single one. And we know it. We know it. And yet, it's not that easy when life hits you hard. Because following God is not going to be easy, painless, or convenient, or peaceful or simple. It doesn't mean fulfillment will be instant. You will freak out. You will make dumb mistakes and bad decisions. You won't deserve anything that God has promised but he will deliver. That which he has promised, he will perform. Not because you are who you are, but because God is who God is. El Olam, God everlasting, God eternal, God enduring, God unchanging. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for every promise you give to your people. There are so many more than just the ones we've looked at. But sometimes, Lord, sometimes the weight of our fear and doubt is so heavy that we don't know what to do with it. And we look at people like Abraham and Sarah and they too they don't know what to do with it. They freak out. They make dumb mistakes, bad decisions, and so do we. God, we ask that you would bless us with just an extra amount of peace. That we might understand from, from seeing you, God, El Olam, God everlasting, God eternal, 
God enduring, God unchanging, that we would learn to be still and know that you are God. Calm our hearts. We panic when life is not easy or painless or convenient or peaceful or simple. We panic because we think the promises are supposed to come in full force right now. And yet faith has always been a journey of crying out to you and learning to trust even when we're afraid. Minister to our hearts, God everlasting. Give us peace, God eternal. Bless us with the knowledge of you, God unchanging. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.